Amen. Well, welcome to the Sunday evening service here at Lakewood Bible Chapel. Uh, please open your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 2, and stand for the reading of God's Word. John chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 1 and read through verse 11. <clears throat> John chapter 2, verse 1. And on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what do I have to do with you? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water jars set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing two or three measures each. And Jesus said to them, fill the water jars with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. Now, when the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the inferior wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this in Cana of Galilee as the beginning of his signs and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. In our most recent studies of this Gospel of John, we've been considering the events which transpired during the first week of the public ministry of Jesus. On the first day of that week, we saw John the Baptist make it clear that he is the voice crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. On the second day, we saw this same man, John the Baptist, catch sight of of Jesus coming to him, and then proclaim, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. On the third day, we again saw this man, John the Baptist, and two of his disciples look and see Jesus walking. And John then proclaimed, Behold, the Lamb of God. And he did it with such conviction that his two disciples followed Jesus. On the fourth day, we see Jesus call Philip to follow him, who then went to a man named Nathanael and explained to Nathanael that he had found the Christ, the Messiah, spoken of by Moses and the prophets. And then finally we see in this evening's text the, the words found here in verse 1, which read, And on the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now this third day mentioned here in chapter 2, verse 1, is the third day following the day that we looked at in our previous text, in chapter 1, when Jesus met Philip and Nathanael. This means that the wedding in our passage took place on the seventh day of the first week of the public ministry of Jesus, three days following the fourth day, which we looked at last time. We also see that this wedding takes place in a small Jewish village called Cana of Galilee, located north of Judea and Samaria. 
Something worth noting is that we've just finished looking at Jesus' encounter with Nathanael, and Nathanael's hometown is this same Cana that the wedding took place in. Something else worth noting is that the first two signs performed by Jesus were both performed in this little village called Cana of Galilee. First, Jesus will turn the water into wine here in John chapter 2. And then in John chapter 4, Jesus will heal the royal official's sons, sorry, the royal official's son, both in Cana. And finally, we see that the mother of Jesus was at this wedding. Some commentators suggest that it is possible that this wedding was for a close relative or friend of Jesus' family, and that Mary may have even held some responsibility for the food at the wedding, which could explain why she soon attempted to deal with the wine that has run out. In verse 2, we read, And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. So not only Mary, the mother of Jesus, was in attendance, but Jesus and his disciples were also invited and in attendance at this same wedding. So the setting is established. Jesus, his disciples, and his mother were in attendance at this wedding in Cana, of Galilee. The setting is set, but before we move on to consider the rest of our text this evening, I'd like us to look ahead at verse 11. Verse 11 reads as follows, Jesus did this in Cana of Galilee as the beginning of his signs and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him and manifested his glory. Brothers and sisters, in this very text, which we're about to consider and which we just read a few minutes ago, in these verses, there are sitting before your eyes and my eyes right now, in these words, in the circumstances that they describe the glory of the sovereign, holy, and righteous Lord of the universe. In these words, we are shown the glory of God. And whether you realize it or not, This is the greatest thing in the universe. This this is the very thing that that you and I were created for, to see and to savor the glory of God. And in these very words, His glory is shown to us. And the question that I want to challenge you with this evening is, do you see it? Do you see the glory of God in our text this evening? And I want you to ask, what is happening with regard to the affections of your heart as the glory of Christ is manifested before us in these very words? Does it well up in your heart in awe for Him? Does it cause you to tremble before Him as your Lord and as your Savior? Does it humble you before Him? Does the sight of His glory open your eyes to see who He really is? Because that's what happened to his disciples that were with him. Verse 11 tells us that his glory was manifested and his disciples believed in him. The eyes of their hearts were opened to truly understand who Christ is and their faith, their belief in him was further grounded. And our faith, our belief is not just an intellectual endeavor where our minds are engaged, but it moves beyond our comprehension comprehension of things to the heart, to the seat of our emotions, and produces in us affections that rightly accord with the glory that we have been shown of the Lord 
by His grace. And not surprisingly, this ties back to the purpose that John, the author of this gospel, has had in writing these things down. And he reveals this purpose in in chapter 20, verse 31, where he speaks of Jesus' signs and says, But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So with this in mind, let's jump in and take a look at verses 3 and 4, which read as follows. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what do I have to do with you? My hour has not yet come. Now, first glance, this is a surprising text. It comes across as though Jesus is speaking to his mother in a way that seems too sharp, too harsh, even too unkind for our own sensibilities. Now, as we consider this, we should realize in terms of historical context that the bridegroom was responsible for providing the food and the drink and the supplies for the wedding and that this would be an extremely expensive endeavor. After all, Jewish weddings can last for a whole week and a lot of drinks, a lot of food, a lot of supplies could easily be consumed during this time of celebration. And so the wine ran out. And this was a very, very serious situation. One commentator provides the following insights regarding this. He says, To run out of supplies would be a dreadful embarrassment in a shame culture. There is some evidence it could also lay the groom open to a lawsuit from aggrieved relatives of the bride. This is not a good situation for this family and specifically for this bridegroom. And now remember that there is a high possibility that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was a close friend or even a relative of one of those getting married. And as was stated before, commentators suggest that she may have held some responsibility for the food at the wedding. So now we can understand why Mary goes to her son Jesus and says to him, they have no wine. And Jesus responds, woman, why What do I have to do with you? My hour has not yet come. Jesus' response to Mary is a little unexpected here at first glance. Uh, Calling her woman seems quite rude. And saying, what do I have to do with you, seems pretty harsh and potentially disrespectful. Surely he, as her son, has a lot to do with her. She's his mother, after all. I know that if I heard one of my sons speak to Lytor this way, they'd be very much in trouble. This isn't how you speak to your mother. And yet this is what Jesus said. As we think about this, understand that this text, even this gospel as a whole, can't just be skimmed over. We can't just breeze through and take the words found in this text at only a cursory glance. In fact, it is these unexpected and surprising parts of the gospel that when you slow down, when you pause and prayerfully consider their meaning, when you you ask the question, what does the author intend to say here? Even more important, what does Christ intend to say through his unexpected words to his mother? It is when we take this approach to Scripture that we gain a right understanding. 
<clears throat> With regard to Christ's response to his mother, at first glance it seems rude to refer to your mother as woman and then to further say, what do I have to do with you? This seems unkind. It even has a feeling of dishonor. This is so much the case that some commentators attempt to explain away their discomfort with Jesus' response by saying that this can only be understood in relation to cultural context, that the, the words he spoke are not as harsh as they seem. Personally, I don't think that that's the case. The words that Jesus spoke to his mother here are direct. They are candid, and they are unambiguous regarding her request. Because of this, we will do good to avoid the temptation of letting our discomforts cause us to explain something away when, when it shouldn't be. <clears throat> With that said, and to be completely clear, if what Jesus says here is unkind or dishonorable, then it would imply that he sinned in what he says to Mary, because it would be a violation of the fifth commandment, which tells us to honor our father and mother. So, so right off the bat, we know that this cannot be the case. Jesus could not be acting towards Mary in a dishonorable manner, because of verses like 1 John 3, 5, which speak of Jesus and say, in him there is no sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21, which explains, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. So while his response may seem harsh to us, while his response may even seem dishonorable from our perspective, we know with certainty that he was not acting sinfully toward Mary, that he was not acting in a manner that was dishonoring to her. But the fact remains that he, Jesus, the Lamb of God, did respond to Mary in a manner that was very clear and very strong, even to the point that we might not feel completely comfortable with how it comes across to us. We must realize that every word Jesus spoke was spoken by him with intentionality and with complete self-control. And so we can know that he very purposefully chose to use these specific words to communicate something very important in the way he responded to his mother. So what does he mean then when he says, woman, what do I have to do with you? My hour has not yet come. It is helpful to remember that we are now considering the events of the first week of Jesus's public ministry, that Jesus's purpose has moved from being the mere son of Mary, the mere carpenter's son, who very likely has been providing for her, as we don't see Joseph mentioned anywhere, that Jesus has moved from what Mary was used to in the first 33 years of Jesus' life as son and provider to him now accomplishing that which the heavenly Father has sent him to do. One preacher makes the following observation with regard to this. Jesus was absolutely bound to his Father's will in heaven and to no one on earth. This was the lodestar in his sky. And there could be no completion... And there could be no competing controls on his life. John 8, 28, I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. John 5, 17 to 19, my Father is working until now, and I am working. The Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. His miracles are not at his mother's disposal or anyone else's. He is entirely in the sway of his heavenly Father. He and the Father are one, and they have one will. 
Jesus' earthly and public ministry had begun. And in the way he responds to Mary, he makes it clear that he is not in subjection to her, even though she is his mother. For one, he's a grown man, but much more the case, he was in subjection to another. He was totally and without exception submitted to the will of the Father and was about his Father's business. Jesus is making it clear that not even his family, that not even his mother retains any kind of control over his ministry here on earth. This is very interesting because I think that this points to something that is true in all of our lives, particularly for parents with grown children. When our kids are young, too young to be a productive member of society, God has designed things such that our children are in subjection to us, that, that we are responsible for our children and they are to obey us, their parents. But there's a point when our children are no longer children. There's a point when our children have grown up. They have become productive members of society and they are no longer boys and girls, but now are men and women. And as grown adults, we as their parents are no longer responsible for them. We've done what we are supposed to do. And now by the grace of God, our children are under the authority of and in submission to another. Ultimately, they are accountable to the Heavenly Father. Fathers, if our daughters marry, they will be in submission to their husbands and thereby to the Heavenly Father. And our sons will, by God's grace, be living in submission to the Heavenly Father, where He determines what our sons, who are now possibly husbands and fathers, are to do. It is to Him and Him alone that our sons submit. There is a reason That so far back in Genesis chapter 2, God establishes the heavenly ordinance of marriage and uses the following words to do so. Genesis 2.24 Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and cleave to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Have you ever wondered why it says that the man shall leave his father and mother and not the woman? It has to do with the God-ordained authority structure put in place by God in the family. As a child, the man was under the authority of his father, who is accountable to the Heavenly Father for how he leads, for how he trains, and how he loves his wife and his children. But when that boy grows up and becomes a man, he leaves his father and mother. He leaves that family unit in which his father is the patriarch and becomes the patriarch of his own family. He he becomes responsible for his own wife and children and cleaves to his wife, becoming one flesh with her. Before God, he is no longer the responsibility of his father. And now he is to take charge, provide for, lead, train, and love his own wife and children in such a way that brings honor to the Heavenly Father. Now, just for clarity, <clears throat> there is, there, this in no way means adult children can be disrespectful to their parents. That would be a violation, again, of the fifth commandment, which commands us to honor our father and mother. But we must recognize the importance of the way that God has determined these things to be, and thus the importance of the man leaving his father and his mother and cleaving to his wife. All of this to establish a new family unit that the man is responsible for before the Heavenly Father. So Jesus 
use these words, which are potentially uncomfortable to our ears, to make it clear primarily to his mother, but also to those eyewitnesses, and ultimately to us who are now reading this account, that it was the Heavenly Father alone to whom Christ was submitted. It was ultimately for the Father's will that he was here doing what he was doing, and the will of those in his family, the will of even his mother, had no sway over these things. And then he says, My hour has not yet come. In saying this, it is the reason that he gives for pushing back on his mother's request, for clarifying that she is not the one whom he is submitted to, but, but instead it is the heavenly Father that he is submitted to. He, he says, my hour has not yet come. And the question that immediately comes to mind is, okay, so how is this a response to Mary overstepping her bounds? And how is this a response to Mary's request about the wine? In order to answer this question, we must understand what Jesus means by his hour. And this comes to light very quickly when we consider how this word hour is used elsewhere in this Gospel of John. Here are a few examples. John 7, 30. So, so they were seeking to seize him. Yet no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. John eight twenty. These words he spoke in the treasury as he was teaching in the temple. And no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. John 12, 27, now my soul has become dismayed, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. And also John 12, 23 to 24, and Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Christ's hour, his hour that has not yet come in our text, that has not yet come in John chapter 7, and has not yet come in John chapter 8, this hour which is described in John 12 as the purpose for which Christ came. Christ's hour is his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and ultimately his glorification. One theologian explains it as follows, the hour is nothing less than the appointed time for Jesus' death, resurrection, and exaltation. In short, his glorification. And this is exactly what we see in John 12, verse 23. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So Christ's answer to Mary, asking him to deal with the wine shortage, is essentially, Mother, it is not yet time for my glorification. After all, it is only the first week in his public ministry, and as we will see, this will only be his first miracle of roughly eight, eight miracles which will take place before the completion of the purpose given him by the Father. And so again, we see Jesus pushing back on Mary, overstepping her bounds. He wants to avoid even the mere appearance that she would have any sway over what the Heavenly Father has sent him to do. Now let's consider Mary's response. Let's look at how Mary received this rebuke from her son, who is King of kings and Lord of lords. Let's look at how Mary responds to this pushback from her son, who is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, her son who is the Son of God. 
Mary says in verse 5, whatever he says to you, do it. Jesus says no. And then she says to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Surely this should be the response for each one of us to Christ. A response of whatever Christ says to us, we will do it. Not in a sense where we hear from him audibly, but rather that whatever we read in his word, we should do it. For it is in his word that Christ speaks to us. He doesn't speak to us through a prophet or some man who has appointed himself as a so-called apostle. He doesn't speak to us through a vision or through a word of knowledge. There is no new revelation from the Lord. Rather, we have all that we need from Him. He he said all that He needs to say to us in His Word in the Holy Scriptures. And so we should be a people who have a high regard for the Scriptures, which doesn't just mean that we read it, and don't get me wrong. Let's be sure to do that. But more importantly, we should be a people who, like Mary, when we read the Scriptures and in every word see Christ speaking to us, we should do it. We should be obedient to it. And we should do this no matter what others might think of us. For like Christ, we too are submitted ultimately to the Father. With regard to Mary, it seems that she realizes that she has overstepped her bounds and that her response is essentially, let your will be done. She's submitted herself to Jesus now as her Lord and is treating him as such rather than as her mere son. Obviously, she has a hope that that he will do something about the wine, right? But she leaves this up to him in instructing the servants, whatever he says to you, do it, with the real possibility that Christ could say nothing to them, that, that Christ could do nothing about the wine, for his hour had not yet come. He, he said as much, after all. And so this brings to mind another question. If he's told Mary that his hour has not yet come, why did he go ahead and turn the water into wine? Well, let's take a look at verses 6 to 10. And here we will see that he indeed deals with the wine shortage and does so so miraculously, so much so that in verse 11 we we are told that he manifests his glory, which quite significantly he's already said it's not yet time for his glorification. His hour has not yet come. Verses 6 to 10 read as follows. Now there were six stone water jars set there for the Jewish custom of purification containing two or three measures each. Jesus said to them, fill the water jars with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. Now, when the head waiter tasted the water which had become wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the inferior wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. I think the answer to this question, the answer to why he chose to do this miracle, even though his hour had not yet come, is as follows. Jesus said no to the full implication of Mary's request in the sense that it was not yet time for the completion of his purpose. It was not yet time for him to die. It was not yet time for him to rise. It was not yet time 
for him to ascend into glory. His hour in this ultimate sense had not come. But Jesus did, according to the will of his father, and not according to the will of Mary, his mother, begin to manifest his glory. He said no to the full demonstration of his glory. He said no to the completion of his purpose, and thus the full revelation of his glory that would take place on the cross. But he said yes to something that would point to it. He said yes to something that would demonstrate who he is and exactly what he, by the will of the Father, was here to do. It is highly significant that Christ filled up jars that were used for Jewish purification with water that became wine. Do you see it? It's not just that something supernatural takes place. This indeed is a key aspect of how this miracle manifests Christ's glory, but there is something more that is revealed in this, that is manifested here of the glory of Christ. Think about this. How do we today, in 2024, remember the sacrifice that Christ made for his elect, the sacrifice that he has made for us, his children, the sacrifice that he has made for those who believe in him as both Lord and Savior? Well, we remember this at the Lord's table. We break bread, which is a symbol of his body broken for us, and we partake in the cup, which is traditionally filled with wine. Wine that symbolizes the precious blood of our Savior. Wine that symbolizes His blood shed on the cross. Wine that symbolizes His blood which covers our sin. Wine that symbolizes His blood which purifies us once and for all. As 1 John says, And the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. And so these six stone water jars, jars used constantly over and over for symbolic Jewish ritual, jars filled with mere water used for washing themselves, jars filled with mere water that symbolize purification typically from contact with Gentiles. One commentator says the following, the Jews washed before eating in order to cleanse themselves from the defilement of contact with Gentiles and other ritually defiling things more than from germs. They needed much water since they washed often. And Jesus chooses these specific jars and replace the water which cannot ultimately cleanse and replace the water that cannot finally purify with wine that symbolizes the final and complete cleansing, the, the total purification that can only come through Jesus Christ, their fulfilled Messiah. He chose these specific jars, brothers and sisters. This is no coincidence. Christ purposefully did this. Christ very intentionally chose these jars, jars used to practice the law, stone jars that were a part of the old covenant. He, he chose these jars to be filled with water, which he then turned to wine to point to the better covenant ratified in the blood of Christ. And the question that I pose to you this evening is, are you a member of this new covenant? Said another way, do you believe in Christ as your Lord and Savior by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? 
If you do not, then no amount of washing will cleanse you of the sin that will ultimately condemn you to eternal torment. If you do not, then I urge you, I implore you, repent of your sin. Turn from it and in humility embrace Christ as your Lord and Savior. There is nothing more important. So there was a shortage of wine. Mary turns to her son, brings his attention to it. He, in no uncertain terms, makes it clear that she has no bearing over what his heavenly father has planned for him to do. Then on his own terms, he rooted in the will of the father, turns these jars filled with water into wine. And he does this as a symbol, as a pointer to the events that would transpire in Jerusalem at Calvary on the cross of crucifixion where his own blood would be shed for the actual purification of those who were elected by the Father before time, those who were chosen by God to be saved. And notice how else this speaks to the glory of Christ. We read in verses 9 and 10, Now when the head waiter tasted the water which had become wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, The head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the inferior wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. Not only was there an abundance of wine, as there were six stone jars that could hold roughly between 108 and 180 gallons. That's a lot of wine. But it was also the best wine. And this is a reflection of the character of God toward us. Not only do we receive the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness towards us, but at the end of Ephesians 3, we read that as believers, His power works in us in a manner that is exceedingly and abundantly beyond all that we could ask or think, and this is to the glory of Christ. He is not a stingy master, but instead one who lavishly pours out His grace on us. He is one who saves and provides beyond what we can even conceive, beyond our comprehension, not setting aside the best for others, but instead giving it to us. As we wrap up this evening, let's now go back and revisit verse 11, which reads as follows. Jesus did this in Cana of Galilee as the beginning of his signs and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Paul prays the following words for the saints that he's writing to in his epistle to the Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the full knowledge of him, so that you, the eyes of your hearts having been enlightened, will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. In this evening's text, the glory of Christ has been manifested. Have the eyes of your heart been enlightened? Do you see His glory? Consider these words from J.C. Ryle. The manner in which the miracle was worked deserves a special notice. We are not told of any outward visible action which preceded or accompanied it. It is not said that He touched the water pots containing the water that was made wine, It is not said that he commanded the water to change its qualities or that he prayed to his Father in heaven. He simply willed the change and it took place. 
We read of no prophet or apostle in the Bible who ever worked a miracle after this fashion. He who could do such a mighty work in such a manner was nothing less than very God. And changing the water into wine is the beginning of Christ's signs. His glory was manifested and his disciples believed in him. Do you see it? Do you see Christ's glory manifested? And does this bolster your faith like it did for the disciples? Are you more in awe of him? Does this cause you to tremble in light of who this says he is? Does this cause your heart to be filled with joy and gladness for what he has done for you? If not, then as Paul is our example, ask the Father to open the eyes of your heart and rest in the knowledge that he gives every good gift to his children. And if you do, then praise the Lord and continue to gaze into his glory and worship him for he and he alone is worthy of our praise. Amen? Amen. Okay, let's pray and then we will finish up with one final song. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this text. Lord, we thank you that you show us your glory. And Father, we depend so highly upon you to see it. And so I ask, Lord, as Paul prayed in Ephesians, open the eyes of our hearts, Lord. Show us your glory. And thank you for the cross and for the blood that was shed there. Lord, the blood that saves us from our sins. And this wine, Lord, that represents your blood. Lord, we are so blessed to be in Christ. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right.